0: Ephesians chapter 4. And this is the applicatory section of Ephesians. I've noted several times that really all of Paul's letters can be divided into um, those sections on doctrine and those sections on application. Um, Sometimes Uh, theologians have called them the indicatives and the imperatives. The, The indicatives of Christianity are the facts. They are those things that are those precious truths about what God has done in Christ for us. And the imperatives are the what then. What then should we do if we have received and believed these things? And one of the interesting things if you're reading through Paul's letters is that those divisions are not always neat and clean. Sometimes it takes Paul 11 chapters, like in Romans, before he gets to an application in chapter 12. Sometimes it's very balanced. Ephesians has six chapters. The first three are exposition, the last three are application, and yet As was said of John Calvin's theology, all his exposition was applicatory and all his application was theological. They are not necessarily mutually exclusive, and Paul will even show us at times how they are working together in conjunction. And so we are coming this morning to the application section of Ephesians, and we're just going to look this morning at the first six verses, Ephesians 4, verses 1. Through 6, and as always, I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. Paul now, and you've probably noticed this, he, he sort of reiterates himself at different times. He says, for this reason, several times, and then he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, a couple times. I've noted this, Paul starts a thought, he gets sidetracked, and he finally comes back to it, that's what's happening. I caught myself doing that this week in a conversation, I'd brought something up, and then we rabbit-trailed for like 20 minutes, and then I realized, hey, you know, we were talking about this. Paul is doing that here in Ephesians, He he has kind of meandered into important things, and then brought himself back, and now he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, who is over all and through all and in all. And then I'll just note what happens in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, there is almost nothing that is more difficult to stomach in the Christian life than having to either witness or to experience some of the great falling outs that happen between true believers. Now, I'm going to say a lot this morning about what true biblical unity is and what it is not. We want to be very careful in that, but there's almost nothing more painful than when we have either witnessed or have experienced falling outs with other true believers. Um, There are many examples of this throughout church history. One of the ones that often comes to my mind is that, that account of Ralph Erskine and his third son, John Erskine. Now, you probably know, Erskine College and Seminary, they're in due west of nothing, due west of nothing. They were named after the Erskine brothers, John, or Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine. They, they were two of the great theologians of the 18th century in Scotland. Um, they were what we call marrow men. They trumpeted the glorious free offer of the gospel and the call, of Christ, the call of Christ to anyone who would come to him. They were known for many of their writings, for hymns that they wrote. And yet one of the things you may not know about Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine is that they were part of the secession church movement that broke away from the Church of Scotland in 1733 that was an important move that's where we got the the associate reform presbyterian church the arp as we have many of them here in the carolinas that's where it was started it was a secession church movement they had left the church of scotland over divisions regarding polity and ecclesiology church government the relationship of the state and the church these were important matters and yet, having broken away from the Church of Scotland within just a number of years in 1747, there was another division, and that division came to be known as the Burger-Anti-Burger Division. Now, uh, the Burgers were a class in Scotland, a uh, ruling class, and when uh, this new division arose, it was because whenever a minister was being ordained, he would be asked to take a certain oath that he believed that whoever held office publicly—this is going to sound familiar to you today, given a lot of the debates we're having about Christian nationalism—that they must confess the true religion to hold office. And Ralph Erskine was fine with the burger oath, but John Erskine, his son, was not. He didn't feel like that was necessary, that that was an overreach, and in turn, that would mean that the state could help oversee the appointment of ministers, something the tr- state ought not hold to. And and so heated was this debate that Ralph Erskine and his son John were sharply divided the better part of their adult lives. And one of the tragic features of this account is that on his deathbed, Ralph Erskine was so grieved over not having been reconciled to his son over this debate that he begged his son to come and see him and his son would not. It is heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. What probably true believers will do out of a sense of pride and rightness. It's heartbreaking. How quickly men and women will divide and give up that spiritual unity that they have in Christ over matters that may be important but ought not to be those things that divide us in our communion with one another. Um, This section of Scripture, very interestingly, the Apostle Paul is now beginning to apply the Scripture, as I've noted, and we're going to see two things in this section. We're going to see, first, the call to Christian living, and then secondly, the call to Christian unity, the call to Christian living, and the call to Christian unity. Well, As I've already noted, Paul is moving on from giving us everything that we have uh, in the gospel of God's free grace in Christ, all that Jesus has done for us, chapters 1 to 3, to now saying that should have an impact on the totality of your life. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Baptist preacher, um, use the illustration of scales, if you could think about one of those antiquated scales. And Lloyd-Jones says, as we think about the balance of doctrine and practice, he says the apostle is exhorting these believers to give equal weight in their lives to doctrine and practice. Think about that, to give equal weight in their lives to doctrine and practice, not to pick one over the other. Lloyd-Jones says they, not, they must not put all the weight on doctrine, And none on practice, nor all the weight on practice, and just a little, if any, on doctrine. Lloyd-Jones says, to do so produces imbalance and lopsidedness. The Ephesians must take great pains to see that the scales are perfectly balanced. Oh, if there was a word I could press on the church today, it is this. You have multitudes crying out for practical living In every kind of sphere and angle and direction. And then you have others that make everything about doctrine. Um, You know, James Boyce warned, and I think he's very right. He said, doctrine without practice leads to bitter and cold orthodoxy. It does. Doctrine without practice leads to bitter and cold orthodoxy. It gives correctness of thought without practical vitality of life in Christ. Practice without doctrine leads to aberrations. It gives intense feeling, but it is feeling apt to go off in any and almost always wrong directions. Isn't that interesting? What Paul is doing here, notice this. He says here in verse 3, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, now he says in chapter 4, I, the prisoner, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of, Of the calling to which you have been called. Um, Paul here is giving us a very practical illustration of what living the Christian life should look like. It should look like you walking forward in accord with God's calling on your life, That, that you should be walking with a purpose, a direction, that we should be walking steadily. We should be saying, am I moving forward steadily in accord with the calling that God has placed on my life? Very simple illustration, and yet very helpful for us, because every one of us is walking in one direction or another. We're either walking forward in a way worthy of the call God's placed on our life, or we are walking the way we used to. You know, Paul used this illustration back in chapter 2. Notice the beginning of chapter 2. He says to them, reminding them of what they were, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You see, it's the same analogy. You once walked that way. Now, I'm urging you to walk this way. Now, when Paul says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, he's not saying there's anything in you that makes you worthy of God's grace. He's actually saying because God called you by his grace when you were walking in sins and trespasses, now the right thing is to walk in accord with the calling that he's put on you. He's called you into his fellowship. He's called you into his kingdom. He's called you out of darkness. He's given you the light of Christ. And he's saying now walk in accord with what you already are. That's that's what Paul is always saying to believers. Look, if you're a believer, if you've been renewed, if you've been regenerated, if you've been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, then be who you are. Live in accord with what God's made you. Um, You know, it's interesting. Paul's going to talk there in verse 2 now about what are the hindrances of us obeying this call? What are the hindrances of us obeying this call? Notice this. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Um, nothing, Nothing hinders believers walking in a manner worthy of their calling so much as pride a desire to be right, a desire to be esteemed, a desire to be promoted above others. That's the biggest hindrance to us living the Christian life. In this context, Paul's going to actually tell us in a minute it's the biggest detriment to maintaining the unity we have in the Spirit. Um, Listen to this. John Calvin in his sermon on this passage, says, what is the reason why we are so severe toward our neighbors and why there is nothing but roughness in us, but because each of us longs to have the preeminence? Now listen to this. I love this quote. Write this down if you can, if you have a pen. If we compare our virtues with our vices, surely we shall find much more reason to beat down our pride than to set it up. Man, I thought about that all week. If you took a category of your virtues and your vices, you would have more reason to try to beat down your pride than to set it up. That is the greatest hindrance to us obeying the call to walk in a manner worthy to which God called us. What is the most fitting thing in the world when we've recognized what God has done for us in Christ? It's to be humble, it's to be gentle, it's to be meek it's to be patient, it's to bear with others. That is the most fitting thing because that's what God did to us. In fact, this call is a call for us to emulate the Lord Jesus, isn't it? Who was so gentle as Christ? Who was so patient as Christ? Uh, B.B. Warfield, uh, who I've quoted many times, has a a really amazing essay called the emotional life of our lord where he talks about of all those attributes that that the lord jesus drew attention to in himself and and he has many and we're not to set them against each other but the big one the one that he sets out the most warfield says is i am gentle and lowly in heart warfield will go on to note that that that's so stuck out to the apostle to the apostles to the disciples that that they were drawn to him because of the way he was so forbearing with them, so patient in bringing them along. Um, that means whatever other, whatever other holiness the Lord calls us to, it's all got to be cloaked in that. And Christian living begins in the local church. Now that's fascinating When Paul begins to apply everything that he has said in this letter, he doesn't start by saying, now, here's what I want you to do as an individual. He doesn't even say, here's what I want you to do as married couples. He does that in chapter 5. He doesn't say, here's where this applies first and foremost to the family. By the way, that's the weakness of movements that so emphasize the family that downplay the local church. Paul starts in the context in which this really all is fleshed out. Where does God's grace manifest itself first and foremost in its applications? It is in the church in which God has knit his people together. Listen to this, St. Clair Ferguson says, The place where Paul begins to encourage believers to work out gospel grace is within the safety of the walls of the fellowship of God's people. So that if it's not happening here, there's no reason for us to expect it's going to be happening when we step out of the walls of the safety of God's people. Isn't that interesting? Um, you know, we are, we are to meditate often on the call that the Lord has given us to walk in the ways that the Lord Jesus walked, with humility and meekness, gentleness, patience, forbearing. Because when I'm impatient, and there are many times I find myself being impatient with others, it's because I'm not walking in accord with the calling to which I've been called. I'm not remembering what Christ did for me, and so I'm dealing harshly with others, Um, I think it was John Stott who once said, uh, Pharisees were easy on themselves and hard on others. So Mark, are you easy on yourself and hard on others? Are you hard on yourself and more gentle with others? That would be a better application of this. But Paul is moving here to a very, very specific application, and that is the call to maintain Christian unity notice he moves so seamlessly he he now says he says in verse 3 eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call now paul is going to say a lot in these short verses he is he is calling believers to recognize that one of the most precious things God has entrusted to them, and that they are to keep is the unity of the Spirit with other believers. Um, Let me say this this morning. I want to preface this with several things. The first is that Paul is not calling Christians to seek out organizational unions that are going to unite all other Christians. That has been one of the grossest misinterpretations of what Paul is saying in this passage. Paul is not calling for a world council of churches to produce some kind of ecumenicity with Roman Catholics and Lutherans and Anglicans and Episcopalians and Presbyterians and Baptists. That is not what he's calling for at all. Let me disabuse everybody in here of that, That is a horrible misunderstanding. Neither is Paul teaching that there should be absolute uniformity among believers in every single thing. He is not teaching that. He is neither teaching uh, some kind of organizational union nor some personal uniformity. In fact, Paul's going to go on to talk about diversity, and we're going to see that next Lord's Day. He he here, though, is touching on something that God, by His Spirit, has already given His people, and that is true spiritual unity. This is where the Reformers got the idea, and before them, long before them, the early Christians got the idea of using that phrase, the communion of the saints, the communion of the saints. So every Sunday, when we confess, or on those Sundays when we confess, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church— the communion of saints, we are confessing what Paul is saying right here. I believe that we have an essential unity with every other true believer from all time, over all ages, both in heaven and on earth, and every other true believer in a very special sense in the fellowship in which God has put us. And that should be of such a treasured appreciation to us. That it is the first application the Apostle Paul makes after setting out these enormous gospel truths. Um, It's it's interesting. Um, The Apostle here is highlighting organism over organization. Now, I want to say this this morning. Church government matters. It does matter. The Bible has much to say about church government, but here Paul does not have external organization in view. Um, We had a Presbytery meeting Thursday. If you've never heard this, Presbytery does not produce spiritual unity. Ever. A book of church order does not produce spiritual unity. The confession of faith, as precious as it is, and as much as it articulates those doctrines once delivered to the saints, does not produce spiritual unity. The Holy Spirit, based on the work of Christ, at the command of the Father, produces that unity. Notice this is a Trinitarian unity. Notice this, that when Paul comes down, and we'll come back to this in a minute, but when he Comes down there in verses four through six to talk about where this unity comes from. He mentions the Spirit in verse four. He mentions the Lord Jesus in verse five. He mentions the Father in verse six. Where does this unity come from? We'll, We'll see this in a minute. This is this is organic unity. The second someone is savingly united to Jesus, he or she is united to all the members of the Godhead. And then because of the union that all other believers have to the triune God, all members of Christ's body are united to one another. Now, just on a practical level, that means that I am not just to see those people I really like as those to whom I'm united to in the same body. Um, There are some people that are just really easy to like. And there are some people that really aren't. I'm not thinking about anybody in particular right now, but you know, you know if you're that person and you know probably who I'm talking about. There are some really sweet, lovely believers who make it really easy to get along with. And there are some cantankerous, ornery, sharp, grumpy, acerbic, vitriolic, just difficult people. Difficult. I'm looking for other adjectives. And and yet we're called to love those believers if they are united to the same Christ as us. Um, just like we're called to love those that we get along with and mesh with and find it so easy to love. In fact, I would argue this morning it's more important for us to be praying about loving those difficult believers because it does come so naturally with some. Um, but here, Notice the first thing Paul's going to say about this call to spiritual unity and maintaining it is that we are to be earnest. Notice what he says. I love this, verse 3, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. You are called to be eager about this. This should be on the forefront of our minds. This should be in front of us. There's one reason why every pastoral prayer I oftentimes pray that we would have the fruit of the Spirit exhibited in our lives because that's what drives this. That's we should be eager in our relationships to, to maintain the spiritual unity that we already have. And, and that should be as vital to us, as Lloyd-Jones mentioned, as our care for sound doctrine. You know, there are some that care very much about sound doctrine, and you get the sense they don't care about being eager to maintain the spirit of unity with other believers. And there are some that care about unity and union And being united with everybody, and they don't care about sound doctrine, here Paul is saying that we are to be eager. We're to be eager about the former. We're to be eager about this. Um, Robert Canlish, he was a Scottish Presbyterian. By the way, Scottish Presbyterians knew a lot about division. More than any other group in church history, they knew about division. And Canlish said this as he reflected on this. He said, true unity of spirit is a beautiful heavenly vase. And it's in custody of rude earthly hands. It is a beautiful heavenly vase, and it's being held by, it's being held by, uh, rude earthly hands. He says it craves tender handling. It is easily marred, cracked, and broken. It needs to be scrupulously watched and most assiduously. I love that word: guarded and fenced. Are you eager to maintain the spirit of the unity and the bond of peace? That's the first application that Paul makes in this great letter following all those doctrines about the grace of God in Christ. Now, why is that so important? That's so important because Jesus prayed for this in his high high priestly prayer. Remember, he prayed, Father, I pray that they may be one as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And remember, Jesus said that by this, all men will know that you're my disciples by the love, by the love that you have for one another. You know who said that? Not a 20th century modernist liberal. Jesus said, the whole world will know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. And, and that means people should be able to come into Church Creek and they should be able to see something of Christ among us based on us being eager to maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. That's going to be the mark because there are many churches that preach and teach orthodox things and people come in and they do not see Jesus among them. They see bitterness and nitpicking and backbiting and fighting and hypercriticism And they don't see people being zealous to hold fast to truth and love. Paul will actually say at the end of this chapter, he'll say that. He'll say, speaking the truth in love. Paul is so balanced on the scales. And he says that you are to be earnest, eager. Now, notice, secondly, under this call to Christian unity, we are to maintain it. It's not something that we're trying to produce. Isn't that wonderful? If you asked me this morning, what do we have to do to get united? I would say nothing. But we got to do something. No, no, no. We already have a spiritual unity by the Spirit in Christ. We are being called to maintain it. I remember a number of years ago, my dad gave me a little piece of paper Would have safety deposit box combinations on them in the event that anything ever happened to him. And he said, look, whatever you do, don't lose this. I probably lost it. Just the kind of person I am. Um, but but when someone entrusts to you something of the highest value, you are called to guard it and to keep it. That's what the apostle is saying. God has given to you something Remember, this is something the world doesn't know. This is something that, that only believers can know, what it is to be united to other believers in the same body, in union with the same triune God. I mean, this is the purpose for which Christ came. Back in chapter 1, it says that he came that in the fullness of time he might bring together in one all things in heaven and on earth. Those those angels and saints in heaven with believers on earth that he might reunite and reconcile together. And then in chapter 2, remember, Jews and Gentiles were divided, and and in one body he has made of the two one new man, thus making peace. And so there's there's this vertical unity between the things in heaven and the things on earth affected by the death of Jesus on the cross, and there is a horizontal union between all believers from all walks of life. And Paul's saying that is so precious that you must guard it. You must maintain it. The word he uses actually is the same word in a different form that the disciples are said to to be doing when they are mending their nets. Why were they mending their nets? In the Gospels, because they knew they needed them to be strong for the work that they would engage in. Paul is saying there's constant need for believers to be eager to maintain wherever there's fractures, to get in and to bolster it. Anytime we see it starting to deteriorate, that we would work at, at, at mending it, at building it up, at maintaining it and keeping it. Um, again, I would remind you that the greatest threat to this is just our pride. It's just simply pride. Um... If I want to be exalted above somebody else, I'm not going to be maintaining the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. If I want to, if I want to um, exceed beyond people. You know, I've got to tell you this story. I don't know if I've ever told you this. There was a minister named F.B. Meyer. He was a Baptist minister who ministered right down the street from Charles Spurgeon. Who would want that job? So Spurgeon's church was right down the street from F.B. Meyer, F. B. E. Meyer was a very celebrated preacher and theologian. His books are still published today, which is remarkable. And and every Sunday he would watch the carriages go by his church as multitudes flocked to hear Spurgeon. I love F. B. Meyer. I feel that sometimes. They're just going by, going to the big church down the road. And they're just going by and he started to get jealous. And he started to be eaten up with envy. And so F.B. Meyer decided, I'm going to start praying for Spurgeon, and I'm going to start praying that God blesses his ministry. And so he, he began to do that, and Sunday after Sunday, more and more carriages were going by his church, and, and he still felt that in his soul. And so F.B. Meyer said, I'm going to start praying that God blesses Spurgeon's ministry so much there's no more room and the people have to come here. And he saw that prayer answered. The point in telling you that is that that is a picture in one sense and though imperfect of what it looks like to be eager to maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. It means overcoming our envies, overcoming our jealousies, overcoming wanting to get our way, overcoming what I want and what they don't do right and why they don't do it and I want you to do this. Listen, if let's, let's just go ahead and make a mortatorium, moratorium today on ever saying, I want you to do this. Can we all just agree to that? We will never say, I want you to do that. And instead, what can I do to bless you? What can I do to build you up? What can I do to make you more like Christ? What can I do to help you grow in your knowledge of the truth? That's what what Paul is saying. He's saying we have this precious unity already. Now maintain it. And then, finally, he calls us to do it by recognizing the source. Now, I've already noted it's the triune God. We have been sealed by the Spirit. We have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus. And we are under the authority of the one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Notice what Paul says there. There is one body, verse 4, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in us all. Now, This means when I think about my Christian life, I need to think I have been incorporated into the fellowship of the one triune God by the reception of the faith once delivered to the saints. I have been baptized into the same body as all other true believers. I have one Lord, I have one God and Father over me, that's, that's why we have this union. It's union with the one God who is himself perfectly united in himself. Um, I want to say a few things this morning as we kind of walk out of this. It does take a level of spiritual maturity to be able to differentiate between those things that ought to divide us and those things that ought not to. You have um, probably heard that statement of that uh, Lutheran theologian, Meldenius. He said, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty and everything charity. It's a helpful statement as far as it goes, in essentials unity, in those essential truths in Scripture about Christ and the triune God, the nature of, of God's grace and the nature of what man is as a sinner and the promise of eternal life and the judgment to come, the essentials of the Christian faith. And those essentials, unity and non-essentials, what, what particular ways in which we carry out the elements of worship. There, there is to be liberty in those things. Um, more unnecessary division has come from people trying to press non-essentials into essentials. And in everything, he says charity, in everything. That means I can disagree with you, and you can disagree with me, and we can do so in love. It means we can talk about differences. It doesn't mean that we give up. There's essential biblical truths for some kind of counterfeit unity. It means we hold fast to them, and yet we seek to bring each other along in them, um, you know who got this so well, and I'll leave you with this thought this morning, was um, a, a, a rather unusual Scottish theologian because of his spirit of unity, John Rabbi Duncan, and he has that famous saying, I am first a Christian, next Catholic, that means part of the universal church, then a Calvinist, fourth a Paedobaptist, baptist and finally a Presbyterian. Why is it so important to highlight that? Because if we make everything that we hold to essential, we're never going to foster and maintain the essential unity we already have in Christ. And so we have to be mature enough to understand what are those vital things? What are those things that must be there, those doctrinal truths that must be there, the things that Paul has set out in chapters 1 through 3? Those are the essential truths. If you want to know what the essential truths are, read everything Paul has just written, and and yet there are other things in Scripture that are important, but they're they're not essential. Um, Are we united with those in uh, believers, Baptist-only churches that preach the true gospel? Yes. If they are united to Christ, we are. Or in Anglican churches, yes, we are. Or in non-denominational churches, yes, we are. Um, this is not a call to unity in ecclesiastical uniformity. This is called to understand the unity we have by virtue of our union with the triune God. Now, I want to say this as we leave. This is, this is so vital because Paul is going to talk about lots of other Christian living throughout the next three chapters. But if we miss this, we've missed where everything starts and we've, we've missed the most essential thing. If we run on to learn how to be gurus of having great marriages, and we've missed maintaining the spirit of unity and the bond of peace with all other true believers, then that will not profit. That will not profit. Um, It both saddens me and it also surprises me to hear many, many doctrinally strong Christians disagree with things I've said this morning, because Paul is clearly, clearly teaching that there's an essential unity we have by virtue of our union with Christ, with the members of the triune God, and and that it is vital for us. You know, the more we do that, the more the church grows and thrives, the more we grow and thrive in our Christian lives. There's a, going to be a trickle out effect when this happens. I hope that you'll be encouraged this morning as you consider your place in this local church or the one in which you are visiting from, that you would be zealous, that you would be earnest to seek to pursue gentleness and humility, and meekness and patience that you would be earnest to maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace, that you would recognize where that comes from and why it is so important that God wants you to maintain it um, in, in whatever fellowship he calls you to. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you that by virtue of our union with your Son, Because you have sealed us with your spirit and because you are over us and in us And working through us that we are united to one another We ask this morning that you would give us a true and real sense of that unity of spirit that you have entrusted to us and graciously given us we pray that you would make us a people who watch against pride and against self-righteousness and a desire to exalt ourselves and that you would make us a people who are earnest in laboring to maintain what you have already given us. And so, Lord, would you do this in us? Would you make it evident that it is true in our interactions and our posture toward one another? And so, our God, would you accomplish this in us and make us zealous in our quest of it? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.